People who disappear don't get to tell their own story. It's why I take my job so seriously. In a sense, I dictate how the missing are remembered. Reading about Jean Spangler's life and disappearance felt a little like watching a movie. It's filled with triumph and tragedy, scandal and heartbreak. It's fascinating, even thrilling at times. But it didn't always feel fair or true. In fact, for me, it raised one important question. What happens when the people who tell your story think you deserve to be gone? I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I'll discuss a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I want you to meet an aspiring actress who left her Los Angeles apartment for work one night and never came home. When investigators began searching for her, they found themselves venturing into the dark shadows behind Hollywood's brightest lights. Her name is Jean Spangler. playoffs are here and we all know playoff mode is a thing listen to the evidence playoff crowds are going wild playoff players are lighting up the court even the speakers are in playoff mode okay we'll take it down a notch but just a notch because this is the turn it up to 11 nba playoffs playoff mode is clearly a thing the NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. I'll be honest, it's hard to know who Jean Spangler was in private behind closed doors. We know the woman the tabloids wrote about, the person they made her out to be. But we don't know her. The real Jean before the messy divorce and the public custody battle, before her sultry persona as a young starlet took shape, before she vanished. I looked, but there's virtually no information out there on Jean's life before she arrived in Hollywood. Here's all that I found. She's born on September 2nd, 1923 in Seattle, Washington as Jean Elizabeth Spangler. At some point, her family relocates to Los Angeles. After graduating from Franklin High in 1941, Jean's a tall, thin, blue-eyed brunette with her eyes set on a career in the entertainment industry. Like a lot of young people in the 1940s, she wants to be a star. As California historian Kevin Starr puts it, post-war LA is where lowly waitresses and valet drivers hustle to leave their past behind. They want to reinvent themselves as the starlets and studio execs they serve each day. At night, they leave the Hollywood glitz for cramped apartments and meager lifestyles. 
but they don't give up on their ambitions. LA was, and still is, a city of dreamers scrambling up the ladder of fame. Jean's way up is dancing. In her late teens and early 20s, she works as a dancer at Hollywood's hottest nightclubs, like the Earl Carroll Theater and the Florentine Gardens. The venues are packed with star power and influence. The types of spaces where Marilyn Monroe holds her wedding reception, and well-connected mobsters linger over their drinks. Places you get noticed. Jean's much more than her looks. Her friends and co-workers say she has a sunny disposition and a beautiful personality. It should be easy for her to find someone to help her up the ladder. Instead, she finds a husband with no Hollywood connections. His name is Dexter Benner. He's older than Jean, but not by much. He's in his early 20s, an LA native who frequents the clubs where Jean dances. I don't know the specifics of how they meet, but they clearly hit it off because by June 1942, they're married. Jean's only 18 years old. Of course, that seems young by our standards today, but in the 40s, most women are getting married in their early 20s. And for Jean, there's a lot to love about Dexter. He's a USC grad headed for a successful career in plastics. He's got a full head of hair and looks good in a suit. In short, he's a catch. Now, I don't want to reduce any marriage to a question of what one person stands to gain from the other, but I would kind of understand if Jean did. I mean, at this point, she's really working hard for her career in the arts, and she's still in the early stages, which, as everyone knows, tends to be neither lucrative nor easy. Having the financial and emotional support of a husband can help. A lot. So long as they are, in fact, supportive. Turns out, Dexter's not. He's apparently pretty cruel. Their marriage is nothing like Jean hoped it would be. She files for a divorce just six months after their wedding. Before the papers are finalized, though, Dexter gets shipped off to the South Pacific to serve in World War II. This puts their divorce on ice, and their marriage enters a strange limbo period. They keep seeing each other in an on-again, off-again way. But things get really complicated when Jean becomes pregnant. By 1945, at war's end, she had given birth to their daughter, Christine. By this point, Jean's 22 and juggling a lot. She's a first-time mom in a tense relationship with a man she just can't live with or without. She's still dancing, trying to make a name for herself. And unfortunately, Jean's luck with men isn't going to get better anytime soon. With the fate of her marriage still uncertain, she enters a relationship with an Air Corps lieutenant who's even worse than Dexter. He's abusive to the point where he actually threatens Jean's life. Even after they break up, the damage is done. When Dexter finds out about the so-called affair, he finalizes the divorce. Then he fights to gain custody of their daughter, Christine. Now, I don't begrudge any father for wanting to spend time with his daughter. I really don't. And I understand that Dexter doesn't see Jean in the best light. She cheated on him and apparently spent some of his money he sent home on the affair. He has a right to be upset, 
but the way Dexter gets custody of Christine bothers me. It's nasty. After being away for years, he drags Jean's reputation through the mud, as if he was there the whole time watching her raise their daughter alone. He paints Jean as some irresponsible young woman, saying she's just some glamour girl who, quote, preferred parties to priorities, and the newspapers eat it up, even though there's no evidence she ever neglected Christine. Now, yes, like every other young actress looking to hit it big, Jean has an active nightlife, but showing face and shaking hands at the right parties is basically a necessary evil in her industry. I find it hard to believe that Dexter's shocked by her behavior, or even finds it inappropriate. Remember, he likely met Jean at a nightclub where she was a dancer. He knows what kind of life she leads. More importantly, he knows the dream that life was in service of. He doesn't care about any of it until after their relationship sours, when it becomes a convenient narrative to help win custody of Christine. Out of spite, he throws Jean's dreams in her face. And he wins. Jean doesn't give up. She fights back and appeals the decision. But to add insult to injury, once he gains custody, Dexter denies her visitation request over and over telling her that he ultimately plans to fix it so she'll never see her daughter again. Ironically, these domestic disputes give Jean her first real taste of fame. In August 1948, the Los Angeles Times runs articles on Jean and Dexter's custody battle. Headlines like, Dancer Tagged Glamour Girl in Custody Battle are meant to draw in readers. Now, as far as Hollywood is concerned, Jean's still a nobody at this point and the Los Angeles Times is a major paper. But they're not covering her case because it's the story of a working mother's struggle. In a town that runs on stories, the press turns Jean's life into a soap opera that they can give regular updates on. It's profitable. It's clickbait if it existed back then. Eventually, a judge reverses the previous decision and Jean is granted custody of Christine but it still comes with an unfortunate lining. The way it's reported on is condescending, to say the least. The media paints Jean as some kind of repentant mom, desperately struggling to keep her wild side in check. It's insulting, but at least on August 16th, the headline in the Times reads, Glamour Girl Gets Daughter Back to Stay. When Christine finally comes home, Jean tells reporters, we both are going to forget everything except that we are together from now on. With her personal life finally stable, Jean shifts her focus back to her career. And it starts to take off. She gets roles in television and film. They're mostly just small bit parts, but she's sharing screens with some major stars. By fall 1949, Jean adds romance to the list of things in her life that are going well. One day, Jean's on set at Columbia Studios. She's in such a good mood that she's literally whistling as she walks. At some point, another actor comments on her behavior, and Jean tells him she's seeing someone new. It's not exactly serious, but Jean says, I'm having the time of my life. Now, I want to take a second here to slow down, almost like we're in a movie because it's an image of Jean I can't get out of my head. 
At 26 years old, she's dumped all of the men who let her down. She has a strong bond with her daughter. Her family life's going well. She's filled with joy, living out her dream by being on set. And she's excited about love again, even if she's being cheekily quiet about it. Maybe Jean just doesn't want to jinx a moment of bliss. Maybe she just likes the secret. Whatever's going on, she's wearing rose-colored glasses and looking straight ahead at a bright future. I want you to remember this, Jean. It's October 7th, 1949, just a few weeks after that moment on set. Jean's at home, but getting ready to go out for the night. She shares an apartment with her mom, Florence, and her sister-in-law, Sophie. They live on Colgate Avenue. At the moment, Florence is out of town in Kentucky. Sophie's agreed to watch Christine for the night. She'll be at home anyway, so it's not a problem. Around 5.30 p.m., Jean shows off the outfit she's wearing. Green pants and a white jacket. She kisses Christine goodnight. Christine asks her mother where she's going, and Jean says to work. As she does, she winks at Sophie. Sophie supposedly knows her real reason for going out. Jean plans to meet Dexter, her ex-husband, at the farmer's market to discuss child support before heading to a film set for work. As she walks out the door, she tells her family, wish me luck. Two hours later, around 7.30 p.m., Jean calls home to check on Christine. She tells Sophie that she probably won't be home until the morning. She has to work all night. It's not surprising. Sophie knows it's the nature of Jean's business. The only surprise comes when Jean never returns home. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even the speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. On Friday, October 7th, 1949, Jean Spangler is supposed to be working on an all-night film shoot. She's left her daughter at home with her sister-in-law, Sophie. But as the sun rises on Saturday morning, Jean's still not home from set. Sophie doesn't worry. Even after Jean's ex-husband, Dexter, swings by to pick up their daughter, Christine, for a scheduled visit. She assumes Jean's just running late and forgot to call. Until the sun sets. Around 10.50 p.m., Sophie reports Jean missing to the Los Angeles Police Department. She relays all the same information that Jean originally gave to her. Jean was going to meet her ex-husband, Dexter, to discuss child support before heading to work. But it doesn't take long for a game of he said, she said to begin. Dexter tells officials he never saw Jean, and they never scheduled a meeting. He spent the whole night with his new wife. Then, when investigators check on the other half of Jean's night, the same thing happens. According to the Screen Extras Guild, Jean wasn't booked for a job on October 7th. They don't know why she'd say otherwise. Jean's family doesn't know either, but they're hoping she'll turn up soon, safe and sound, and explain. The next morning, Jean doesn't turn up. 
but her purse does, about six miles away from her home in Griffith Park. Around 7 a.m., an employee finds it by a large gate. It's quickly identified as Jean's. Officers go on to search all of the roughly 4,000-acre park, but no other evidence surfaces. Fortunately, the purse seems like a promising lead. The strap is torn, which is possibly an indication of a violent struggle. And inside, investigators find a note in Jean's handwriting. It reads, Kirk can't wait any longer. Going to see Dr. Scott. It will work best this way while mother is away. Obviously, this opens up a whole host of questions. Who is Dr. Scott? What can't Jean wait for? What will work best? Did Jean deliver the note, or was she just planning to? And perhaps most importantly, who's Kirk? Now, when asked, Jean's family says they've never heard of a Dr. Scott before, but there was a Kirk in Jean's life, a fellow actor. She'd recently wrapped a film with him called Young Man with a Horn. He was the star of the film, in fact. Kirk Douglas. As you can imagine, this is a big deal. A Hollywood superstar is now possibly connected to a missing persons case. For officials, it's a nightmare. They're thinking about all the red tape they'll have to deal with. Not to mention, one wrong move and they're dealing with movie studios, agents, PR teams, enraged fans. So investigators are shocked and relieved when out of nowhere, Kirk Douglas contacts them. After seeing news of Jean's note in the LA Times, he tells them he was over 100 miles away in Palm Springs on the night Jean disappeared. Then he issues a statement saying he didn't remember Jean until a friend jogged his memory. She was an extra, and they joked around a bit, but that was it. He closes his statement by writing, I never saw her before or after that, and have never been out with her. Never been out with her. It's a really specific way to phrase his point. Like he's just as concerned about being romantically tied to Jean as he is worried about being tied to her disappearance. His fears are legitimate. By this point, the LA Times has mentioned Jean's mystery lover. And after news of the note hit, rumors are starting to spread that it could be Kirk. This is his way to get ahead of the story. Because even though the media doesn't spell it out explicitly in their coverage, everyone believes the note implies Jean was planning to have an abortion. Now, one of Jean's friends tells police that she was pregnant, possibly at the end of her first trimester, but most of Jean's loved ones insist that she's not. There's no way. I don't know what's true and what's not. The only facts I feel comfortable asserting are, Jean's an adult woman capable of making her own decisions. She's also a single mother whose parenting skills had recently been dragged through the newspapers for months. Rather than add my own speculation, I want to put the scrutiny back on the media on how the LA Times continues to cover Jean's disappearance. On October 12th, five days after Jean's last scene, one reporter writes, the investigation has confirmed the existence of a Scotty, or Dr. Scott, who is known to Miss Spangler and her coterie of nightclubbing friends. It's coded language written in the 40s, but to translate for you, 
the writer seems to be implying that Jean hung around a crowd who routinely got abortions. And the tone is definitely derisive. Think how tabloids discussed female celebrities in the early 2000s. Even though the writer's wrong on at least one account. The police haven't confirmed the existence of a Dr. Scott. They traveled to some local bars that Jean used to go to and heard about a medical student who performed illegal abortions for women. But he goes by Doc, not Dr. Scott. And there's no evidence to connect him to Jean. Of course, that doesn't stop the rumor mill. After all the media fodder, a theory develops out that Jean tried to get an abortion. The procedure went horribly wrong and she died. After the doctor disposed of her body somewhere, they dumped her purse in Griffith Park and ran. Now, I don't know if there's any truth to this theory, but there could be. And if there is, I can't help but wonder what might have been different without the stigma and without the laws banning a woman's right to choose. As for investigators, they're left exhausting other avenues and examining materials from other cases. See, Jean Spangler is one of many the LAPD are working on, and they're wondering if there's any connections. Two months earlier, in August 1949, socialite Mimi Boomhauer disappeared from her Bel Air mansion. She spent a lot of time in the same clubs and bars that Jean worked and played at. Her purse was later found across town, just like Jean's. Two years before that, in 1947, the brutal killing and dismemberment of Elizabeth Short shocked LA. You may know the case better by its nickname, the Black Dahlia murder. Like Jean, she was a dark-haired actress, rumored to have been looking for an abortion. The connections are all thin, but the press still runs wild and all of the blame gets placed on the victims. I mean, just listen to this quote from the LA Daily News. Like Elizabeth, Jean haunted night spots and the company of men. Like the Black Dahlia, the lost TV glamour girl was always willing, perhaps too willing, to make a sudden impulsive date with a stranger, regardless of danger. It's maddening for me to hear. I can't imagine how Jean's mother Florence feels. By the end of October, Florence writes a letter to the LA Times that actually gets published. I'm not sure if the editors realized at the time that it's dripping in sarcasm. It's short, so I'll read you most of it. After commending them for covering her daughter's mysterious disappearance, she writes, I thank you all most sincerely and with the deepest appreciation. And I commend you for not allowing any type of smear news to be printed, as that is definitely no help in returning or finding our Jean, but only serves a very malicious way of damaging her future, and also that of her little daughter, Christine. Florence Spangler, Gold Star Mother, Los Angeles. It's titled A Mother's Thanks, and it's the epitome of killing them with kindness, because Florence is acknowledging two truths, First, that her daughter deserves her story to be told fairly. And second, that the media has the power to help her case. For all she knows, the Times could be circling the truth with some of their pieces. Maybe Jean's disappearance does have to do with the mafia.
When Jean Spangler goes missing on October 7, 1949, she leaves behind a distraught mother, daughter, and sister-in-law. Meanwhile, the LAPD and the media investigate dramatic possibilities. They continuously and shamelessly suggest Jean's disappearance could have had something to do with movie star Kirk Douglas or black market abortion clinics, even the notorious Black Dahlia murder. Like they're pitching movie ideas, not helping solve a possible crime. Now, I won't go so far as to say Jean had a dark side, but it's possible she may have gotten mixed up in the darker side of Hollywood. This comes to light once investigators piece together more of what actually happened on the night Jean disappeared. Turns out, she did go to the farmer's market, even if it wasn't to meet her ex-husband. A locksmith named Ray Miller remembers chatting with Jean there sometime around 5.30 p.m. She was apparently in high spirits and said she wanted to buy her daughter a handbag. Another witness, a cashier, also recognizes Jean. She tells police that Jean looked like she was waiting for someone, but to the best of her knowledge, they never showed up. Much later, after midnight, two different men see Jean at the Cheesebox restaurant on Sunset Boulevard. Terry Taylor, the restaurant's owner, and Al Lazar, a radio DJ. According to Taylor, around 1.30 a.m., Jean was seated at a table with a man, clean-cut brunette in his 30s. Lazar approaches Jean's table about 30 minutes later, and there's two men with her. They immediately wave him away. It seems like they're arguing with Jean. Now, the LAPD are never able to identify these two men, but about five months after she disappears, someone claims to see Jean Spangler alive in El Paso, Texas, then in Arizona, Mexico, and different parts of California. And she's allegedly spotted with two other people, men who are as famous as she is, David Ogle and Frank Nikolai mobsters who once worked for one of LA's most fearsome organized crime bosses, Mickey Cohen. They went missing around the same time as Jean did, and they had reason to disappear permanently. In the fall of 1949, right before Jean goes missing, Ogle and Nikolai are out on bail, under indictment for conspiracy charges. They're in a tough spot, since they were both close to Cohen, people on both sides, law enforcement and the mob, are wondering what they'll say when the trial starts, or if they'll be alive to testify. Because as the saying goes, dead men can't talk. There's a real fear that they'll be murdered before ever taking the stand. In the end, neither man shows up to court. The last confirmed sighting of Frank Nikolai happens about a month before Jean disappears. Witnesses last see David Ogle on October 10th, mere days after she goes missing. Could they have disappeared together? I don't know. But Jean and David Ogle were reportedly spotted together in Palm Springs, just a few days before they both disappeared. Maybe David was Jean's mystery man, they could have met on set. The mob controlled the crew unions in Hollywood at the time. If Gene was involved with David and his bosses went after him, it's possible she became collateral damage. 
Now, the image of Jean running off with a criminal lover would be another Hollywood twist, but I'm not willing to give this theory much credence. The truth is, after that night at the restaurant, the majority of Jean's sightings are unverified. Plus, the Jean that would run away with a mobster and abandon her family feels like the persona the newspapers created, not the person she was. In March 1950, Florence forgoes sarcasm and outright criticizes the latest rumors and gossip, writing, Jean was not the kind of girl to get mixed up with people like that. Nobody can tell me that she would have left her baby unless she was forced to do so. And I believe that. Even if Florence didn't know the whole truth about the company her daughter kept, the second part rings true. After fighting so hard for custody, Jean wouldn't just walk away from Christine. But there was someone desperate to take Christine away from Jean. Dexter Benner, Jean's ex-husband, and man whose alibi came from his wife. According to a 2001 interview with Jean's sister-in-law, Sophie, when Dexter picked up Christine on the morning of October 8th, he had scratches on his face, the kind that might come from a struggle. Sophie didn't see them herself, but a detective told her about them later. There's no mention of scratches in the 1949 reports, and it's information that only came to light 50 years later. So take it with a grain of salt. But I can't help thinking about how Jean said she was meeting Dexter at the farmer's market that night, how it initially seemed like she had lied, but witnesses later came forward saying that they saw her at the farmer's market, looking like she was waiting for someone. Dexter told Jean that he'd make sure she never saw Christine again. After Jean went missing, he got custody of Christine. Courts ordered him to allow Florence visiting rights. He refused and reportedly evaded punishment for breaking the order by taking Christine and leaving California. He died in 2007 in the state of Florida. There's so much we still don't know about Jean's disappearance where she went, how her purse ended up in that park, Kirk, Dr. Scott, the mystery man. There haven't been any major breaks in the case since the early 1950s, and it feels like one of the reasons for that is everyone gave it attention, but almost no one gave it the attention it deserved. I'm not here to convince you that Jean was a saint, but there's no doubt that she was trapped in a system that didn't prioritize her well-being. Investigators and the media tried so hard to blame Jean for her own disappearance that it never felt like they were looking for real answers. And if you need any more proof, around the third anniversary of Jean's disappearance, an article in the LA Times quotes a detective saying, the only thing we've been able to find out is that this girl really got around. Let that sink in. An officer laughs about the disappearance of a 26-year-old single mother because she had an active sex life? What? Is it funny to him that his department hasn't done enough to find real, substantive answers? It makes me furious. Because Gene Spangler's story isn't some black and white film from a bygone era. There are still genes alive today, here and now. Women whose partners make them feel like unfit mothers because they don't fit outdated stereotypes. Whose dreams of success are dashed by abusive men who hold the keys to power. 
who die because other people decide what they can and cannot do with their bodies. They say Hollywood loves a happy ending, but in Jean's case, the sad reality is Hollywood decided they loved a tragedy more, and that should never happen. Next episode, the disappearance of a famous American chess prodigy who walked out into a record-breaking blizzard in New York City and never returned. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to listen to this episode, 30 people disappeared in the United States alone. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing person case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board, but it's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. Among the many sources we used for today's episode, we found John Lewis's book, Hard Boiled Hollywood, especially helpful in our research. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Disappearances stars Sarah Turney and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Alex Button, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Disappearances was written by Amin Osman, with writing assistance by Mackenzie Moore and Connor Sampson. Fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Mickey Taylor. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice.